in the financial world, it seems like I am always hearing about great investment opportunities way after the fact. Like, I would have loved to have known in the early 90s that the computer company that made way overpriced, crappy, underpowered computers called Macintosh would one day produce some of the best computers in the world, still overpriced, but be like one of the most lucrative companies in the entire world. I probably would have bought stock. I would have liked to have known that the ridiculous idea that one day an internet company bringing your packages to your door was going to outsell brick-and-mortar stores like Amazon. thought that was a stupid idea in the, in, you know, early on in it when it started. And then I would have, it would have been nice to have known that the Swedish company that makes sketchy furniture with instructions like my five-year-old could draw uh, that sells like uh, meatballs made out of horse meat in Europe, Ikea, uh, it would have produced like one of the richest people on the planet. That would have been a good thing to know back, back when stock was affordable, right? Um, what if you could get insider trading tips and it were legal, right? Would you be kind of a fool not to take advantage of that? And kind of tonight we're, we're dealing with a text that at least has traditionally been interpreted as insider trading info. Like Jesus is telling us, hey, more important than your money, I've got an idea about how to invest your life for eternity. So hopefully that piqued your attention. It piqued mine when I was reading it. And now we're going to enter into that text. Please stand as we read Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Jesus says, For it's just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But the one who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one uh, talent came up and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talents in the ground. See, have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew I reap where I didn't sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, help us as we enter into this parable you told, help us, Lord, from uh, vast distances of time and culture 
language to hear what you're saying, to hear what you said, but also to hear in the power of your Holy Spirit what you are saying to us. Lord, then help us to have open minds and hearts and courage to obey what it is you're saying. Amen. You may be seated. Most of my life, I have heard that same parable on the talents preached and taught like this. Jesus is the master in the parable. He gives his disciples, the 12 disciples, and you and me, talents. And usually that's summed up by a snappy preacher's alliteration. Talents mean time, talents, and treasure. We all love to say that, all the preachers. Jesus has given us the gospel... And by the way, I will use that again over and over again. So I'm making fun of myself. Jesus has given us the gospel. He's given us influence. He's given us talents and spiritual gifts. He's given us various degrees of financial gifting as well. Resources. And the sermons that I've generally preached and heard preached on this uh, text usually go on to say that the first two slaves who invest their time, talent, and treasure well receive a good reward from Jesus when he returns uh, for his second coming. The third slave is judged for having been too fearful uh, to invest the things that Jesus gave him. He's cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and of course that is generally interpreted as hell. So in the end, you have Jesus warning his disciples about the benefit of investing time, talent, and treasure well, and a warning about the mortal danger of not doing that well. All right. Now, as I've been digging into this parable over the past few years, and as I see it in the larger context, I've come to see that I've been missing the main point of the parable for some time. And this evening, I want to share with you maybe a different reading of the text that I believe is a truer way of reading what Jesus meant and therefore what Jesus means. To understand a passage like this, or any passage really well in the Bible, we need to do two things well. One is, we need to read it in, in the right genre. Right? There's lots of different genres in the Bible. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's, there's law, you know, different genres. This happens to be a parable. We also have to read it in the right context. Right? You've heard me say that over and over again. So, first of all, genre. Our genre is a parable. Jesus is teaching us in the form of a parable. And parables are stories that are derived usually from everyday life. So Jesus or anyone in his time period that was a teacher wants to tell a parable that his audience gets already. You know, so he always talked about agriculture because people did that. He talked about fishing. His disciples, many of them were fishermen. And he talks about a typical arrangement here of a master and money and servants. That's just kind of the world that they lived in. So parables are stories derived from everyday circumstances. The parables of Jesus are not allegories. I know I, I say this over and over again, but I say it over and over again because we typically read Jesus' parables as allegories. We have a problem with that. So for example, an allegory is where you give a meaning to every person and object in a story that has nothing to do with the actual story. So for example, the, the, the parable of the ten maidens, you know, and the, they're going to meet the bridegroom and they have their lamps of oil. Well, there's all kinds of stuff written about, well, the oil must represent this A, B, and C. And nobody really knows what the oil represents. I don't think the oil is the point of the story. So we want to be really careful that we don't assign values to the characters and to the objects in the parable 
that Jesus didn't mean uh, to, to have values for, all right? Parables, the main thing is that they seek to draw us in. Parables, every single time, want the hearer to make a decision, all right? If you, if you get anything about a parable, get that. Jesus tells a parable always so that his audience will make a decision. And that decision will either, either lead towards mercy or to judgment. And Jesus is pretty clear that even not making a decision about a parable is making a decision about the parable. Okay, So it either leads us towards mercy or it leads us towards judgment. Okay. All right, so genre. Important uh, guideline, our genre is parable. Um, another important guideline is context. Our parable begins with these words. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. And if i got to ask the question, well, what is just like a man that goes on a journey? Right? What is just like a man that is about to go on a journey? Well, to find out, we need to read what comes before. And look, it's another parable. If you've got your Bible, you could look at Matthew 25. And uh, our parable is Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Right before that parable is another one, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is comparable to ten maidens who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. On and on the parable goes, contrasting the wisdom of the five maidens who were prepared with the five maidens who were not prepared. And by the way, in the Old Testament, can, does anyone know um, who is the bridegroom in Old Testament stories? Any guesses? There's lots of stories about bridegrooms in the Old Testament. The groom in Old Testament stories is Yahweh. It's God, right? And in the Old Testament, both poetry and narrative in the, in the prophets, God is going to marry Israel. So the maidens represent Israel. And the point of that story is, the parable of the ten maidens is, um, that Yahweh is visiting the bridegroom has come. Are you ready? Are you ready to be rescued? Because those who are ready will be rescued. Those who are not ready, those who are foolish, who are squandering their life on frivolous things, will perish. Okay, so that parable is about the kingdom. It's about God coming to Israel. And now we get our parable. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. What is just like a man about to go on a journey? The coming of the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey. The coming of the king of heaven. So far, so good. The coming of the kingdom of heaven is another way of talking about the end of the age or the beginning of the new age. As we saw last week when we looked at Matthew 24, Jesus is declaring the kingdom of heaven's arrival with his presence. And he doesn't wait to the end of Matthew to do that in Mark chapter 3. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, is near, has come upon us. There's all kinds of ways to translate that, but it means it's here with Jesus' presence. He's saying that the kingdom has come. He spoke of judgment on those in Israel who did not recognize the arrival of the kingdom. He was particularly harsh on the religious leaders, wasn't he? Uh, those who failed to recognize that God that they were revering so much was in their presence. 
And this brings us to why I don't think the parable of the talent is first and foremost a parable where Jesus is the master and we are the slaves in the story. In other words, what I'm, what I'm saying is I don't think this parable is about how you and I might be judged by how we use or don't use our talents. Stick with me. First, reading in context with the parable of the ten maidens, we know that this parable continues with the same line of thought. It's not about Jesus' second coming. It's about his presence. It's about the kingdom of God actually being there now. See, so often we read this parable as if Jesus were preparing his disciples or preparing us, saying, hey, I'm about to go on a journey, use the stuff I give you well, and when I return, there's going to be an accounting. But what if we read it as, Hey, this is about when God left the temple hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. In the Old Testament, prophets talks about that. In fact, Josh's text out of Amos talks about that. Ezekiel more clearly. But it talks about the presence of God leaving the temple, leaving Israel, and one day him returning. And what if this is about not, hey, I'm going, but hey, I have come back. The, the parable is about the end of, of God coming back, and, and the time is now. So instead of uh, reading this parable as a warning of how to live between the time Jesus leaves and comes back, what if it's a warning that the waiting for Yahweh to come is over? All right. Which brings me to my third reason I don't think this parable is primarily about Jesus' second coming. Just like the parable of the ten maidens before it, whenever we see a biblical poem about a king or a master who goes away and entrusts responsibilities to his slaves or servants, it always refers to God as the master and Israel as the servants, not Jesus as the master and the church as the servants. Okay? We can expect Jesus, uh, or I should say, can we really expect Jesus to tell a parable about his second coming when his own disciples at that time hadn't even grasped his first coming yet. Like, they didn't yet know until after he was resurrected that Jesus was really the Messiah, the Son of God. They totally didn't get it. Not even his own disciples, the, the inner three of the twelve, uh, fully understood that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh at this point in the story. So why would Jesus then tell a parable about his second coming when he hasn't even had his first coming yet? Like, or his, his going away. He hasn't died yet. Well, you might say, Jesus has predicted his death at this point numerous times. Touche. That leads me to another point. The disciples clearly don't believe he's going to die a death of betrayal on a Roman cross. They fall asleep when he's praying in agony. If they really thought, hey, tonight my master's going to be arrested and crucified, don't you think they would stay up a little bit? Uh, they try and fight the Romans in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, they don't get that this is what Jesus is supposed to do. They have no concept that Jesus will be resurrected. In fact, when he's crucified, one of the disciples already committed suicide. The rest flee in obscurity and disillusionment. It's not until after Jesus is resurrected unexpectedly that the disciples then start to understand. Oh my goodness, we had missed it, but now, now we get it. It's such a powerful event, the resurrection, that the disciples lives were completely changed. My point is, if Jesus is telling this parable about his second coming, 
Why was it so shocking when he was resurrected later on? And finally, probably the most convincing to me, Jesus is not telling this parable about himself and the church because there was no church yet. Like, we read this from our perspective. But to, the, to those 12 disciples, Jesus was a, a very, very special Jewish teacher, possibly even the Messiah. Boy, he's done some amazing things. We're starting to think he is the most, he might be the Messiah of God. But they're not the church yet. Like, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. No one's, they haven't referred to themselves as the ecclesia. Or, you know, they're, they're just 12 Jewish guys following this Messiah. There, there is no church. So hopefully, maybe this has cracked your mind open for, with a few good reasons for us to at least give this parable a different reading. But my suggesting what this parable doesn't mean, I know it doesn't help you at all. It doesn't tell you what it does mean. So let's do that now. Uh, first of all, the parable itself. It was common enough a description of, uh, of events in Jesus' day. A wealthy master entrusts his slaves or servants with managing his money. In Roman times, slaves were not... All, some of them were captured in war and were treated horribly, uh, but typically we think of slavery as the American South. And that, for many slaves in the Roman world, uh, wasn't the case. In fact, many philosophers, doctors, lawyers, and financial managers were slaves. They could earn money, they had property, they could get married, all of these kind of things. Anyway, the parable imagines a scene where the master entrusts three slaves with various large sums of money. Now, some of you may have a financial planner, and if your financial planner has done well with your money, you're probably open to having that financial planner invest more of your money, right? Uh, but maybe you've got a new financial planner, and you're like, well, let's just see how this person does. Like, I don't know their ability yet, so I'm going to give them a little bit, right? Well, imagine a scenario where maybe this master has three financial planners, and, and maybe one is good, you know, has networks with agriculture, and one uh, knows the cattle market really well, and one's into textiles, and the you know, the one's really experienced, we're going to give that one the 15 or the five talents, and the other one's medium experience, two talents, and the other one's just a newbie, let's see what they can do with one talent. Who knows? That's not really the point. The point is that the master expected that these three would invest the money to make him money. And just as an aside, talents mean money. Like, we think, oh, it means abilities and all this stuff. It, talent, a talent in, in this time period was a unit of weight. And what it meant was the unit of weight of gold or silver that would equal a certain amount. So uh, one talent roughly equaled 15 years of a day laborer's wage. 15 years. So the one with five talents, we're talking like 75, maybe a lifetime's worth of wages that you're investing. And even the one with one talent then is investing a large sum of money for a slave to be handling, right? 15 years worth of wages. Well, we know that this master expected them to invest the money and to make money because when he returns, he settles accounts. He wants an accounting of his investment. Uh, the first two, although they were given different amounts, they had the same percentage return, and they both received an extravagant reward. It was their job to make the master money. I assume that they were getting at least room and board, but probably some kind of money just to do the work that they were doing. But... Instead of just paying them their regular wage and saying good job and giving them a gift card to the nearest restaurant or whatever, um, he, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been responsible with little. I will give you responsibility and much. Enter into the joy of your master. And Aramaic is the language that Jesus probably spoke. In Aramaic, that word for joy 
uh, means banquet or party or hospitality or basically enter into the family name that I covered over you. You are one of my people. But maybe the most interesting thing is that the master doesn't have them enter into his joy and then say, all right, you did well, now live high on the hog for the rest of your life. Enjoy retirement. Instead, he gives them more responsibility. Two observations about this. First, the new responsibility is so great that it makes investing five talents of money look like a small thing. You are, in, you are responsible with little I don't know anyone that would think five talents is little. You were responsible with little. Now I'm going to give you responsibility for much. Second, responsibility to work for the master is seen as a great reward, not a punishment. You know, in our culture, uh, in our mindset, people look forward to retirement, and there's good reasons for that. Uh, few of us have great employers uh, or em- great employees. Um, our, our jobs are imperfect. Our bosses are imperfect. Our market is imperfect. Our bodies are imperfect. Our minds lose their sharp. You know, there's just all kinds of great reasons to you know, you get to a certain age and look forward to retirement. But the master in this story is so good and so gracious that getting more responsibility is a great honor and reward. We've talked about the first two slaves and their investment and the reward, but the emphasis of this parable lands on the third slave who was tasked with investing one talent. Still a significant sum, this slave does not risk investing the money. Instead, he buries it, which is a common method of protecting money from robbers. When confronted with his poor performance, the slave reports that he was afraid because he viewed the master as, I quote, a hard man reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And this is the section of the parable that gets a little bit weird. If God is like the master and the slaves are like Israel, does this say something about God's character? Is he really unscrupulous? Is he, is he mean? Is he a hard God? The short answer is no. First of all, and this is way too glib to, to land on, but theologically speaking, everything belongs to God, right? So there's no way he can steal in the first place. But that's just kind of my Sunday school answer. Uh, second, the real reason, uh, the real issue here is that the third slave does not know his master. He doesn't know him. The first two slaves knew that the master was good and trustworthy. They did a good job. The master was more gracious than they expected or deserved. The master in the story is overflowing with abundant grace. That's his character. The third slave was wrong about the master's character, and it affected how he did his work. There's an important theological point here, by the way. Your conception of God will directly affect how you worship, how you live, how you think about yourself, and how you view other people who are made in God's image. Let me say this. If your conception of God, how you view God, does not line up with the Jesus of the scriptures, you need to adjust your conception of God. The master in the story goes on to say, if you thought I was so harsh, why weren't you afraid enough at least to make sure you earned some interest? Why didn't you put it in the bank 
where it would have been equally safe as burying it in the ground, if not more safe, and would have made a small profit. You are wicked and lazy. You knew that I reap where I didn't sow? Well, now, even the responsibility you had will be given to the one who's shown himself most responsible. And that's the end of the parable. Once the story ends, then Jesus comments on it. Everyone who has, or to everyone who has more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. We have seen that exact line before in Matthew 13, 12, in the parable of the sower and the seed. It's a proverbial statement, meaning that the word of God is a gift, but you have to receive it or you will lose it. The word of God is not neutral. It is not trivial. It is not one word among many words. It's not one religious option among many religious options. If you squander the good news of God, and in this case, if you squander the good news that God has come among you, you will not be rescued. You will find yourself judged just like the nations. And here's where you wonder, why on earth did he read Amos earlier? Okay, so (laughs) Josh read Amos earlier in the service because in that passage, Israel is longing for the day of the Lord, the coming of the kingdom, the end of the age. They were looking forward to the day that Yahweh would come because they thought that his coming would mean judgment for their enemies and glory for them. Amos writes, alas, You who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Oh, I never thought about that. I thought it would be a party for us and bad for them. No, Amos writes, it will be darkness and not as light as when a man flees from a lion. Oh, just got away. Dang, I met a bear on the trail or I'm running from danger. I get to my house, I put my hand on the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom and no brightness in it? See, Israel had been unfaithful. They had been mistreating the poor and the widows and the orphans. These are the things that God called his people to do and to be, and they had not lived into the people, into their calling. They'd taken to idolatry and to religious worship gatherings where they just went through the motion, but there was no heart behind it. They thought the day of the Lord would be a good thing, but unless they repent of their sin, they would find God's judgment would first be leveled against them and then the nations. It would be darkness and gnashing of teeth, pure regret. That's what gnashing of teeth means. It is, oh, I chose wrong. It's that feeling when you've done something wrong and you cannot take it back. Gnashing of teeth. In the parable before us, Jesus is warning Israel that Yahweh has returned. He's come to settle accounts. Those who receive Jesus, who trust him, who accept him as king and Messiah, they're going to enter into the joy of the master. But for those who squander their chance, they're going to be judged. The parable of the ten maidens before it is a warning. Wake up. The day of the Lord is upon you. How will you respond? And I believe that that is what Jesus meant when he told the parable of the talents. I believe that it, it, it's what um, those with ears to hear 
heard when they heard this parable. When Jesus is saying it, those who had faith ears to hear were saying, the Ten Maidens parable, this one put together, Matthew 24, all of this is rushing in. Oh, Yahweh has come. He's come. Now, that doesn't mean um, it doesn't preach to you and me today. Okay? Now, you have been very patient, and most of you are still awake, and it's about to pay off. So here we go. Here we go. There's good news in this parable. Throughout the Gospels, and we'll just stick with Matthew for now because contextually that's where we're at, but you could look at this in any of the four Gospels. We have seen Jesus presented as king from the line of David. We've heard an angel named Gabriel declare that this baby would be known as Emmanuel, which means the with us God. We have seen Jesus defeat Satan in the desert, succeeding against temptation where Adam, our original ancestor, was defeated in the garden. We've seen Jesus go up on a mountain and teach the ethical heart of God behind the Torah, where Moses went on a mountain and gave the Torah, so Jesus is presented as a new and better Moses. Jesus has done the work of Yahweh in his healings and his exorcisms and his control of nature, even raising the dead back to life. Think Lazarus and the little girl, Jairus' little daughter, among others. Finally, this, this Jesus gives himself to torture and to humiliation and death, just like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And what do all these things, King of David, Moses figure, Yahweh himself, Emmanuel, suffering servant, all of these things come together to make a composite, oh my goodness, Jesus is the representative of everything Israel as a nation was supposed to be. The nation that was supposed to be a blessed to be a blessing, that was supposed to give herself selflessly so that the nations would come to worship Yahweh, did not do those things. So instead of God condemning that nation who did not do that, he sent one to accomplish what they could not accomplish. That one is Jesus. He fulfills Israel's mission being a blessing to the nations, of inviting the world to fellowship with God. The end of the old age with Jesus, the end of the old age has passed, the beginning of the new age of the church and the power of the Spirit has come. Don't hear that this is replacing Israel. What this means is now Israel can get on board through faith in Jesus, but so can everybody else. That's what the age of the church means. Everybody's in through Jesus. So now, if you're still with me, you and I who are in Christ, who are rescued in Christ, found faithful in Christ, are truly new creations. We are truly made new in Christ. We are truly found faithful in Christ. And that means that the parable of the talents is not intended to make you and I afraid of a final exam that's going to come up one day. And there's going to be this scale, by the way, that's Egyptian uh, theology, where your heart gets weighed on a scale against your deeds. It is not a, a, a warning that, oh my goodness, you better look out because if you haven't invested in all your time, talent, and treasure really well, you're going to be in trouble. In fact, if it is an exam like that, the good news is that Jesus took it for you and he passed it with flying colors. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ the last time I checked. Try and find a writing of Paul, Peter, epistles of John, Hebrews, where there is condemnation for those who are in Christ. You cannot find it. The, the thing that comes closest is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which we'll get to after Easter, where uh, it talks about a judgment of uh, a purifying fire that will test our work and our foundations. But even in that scenario, the Christian is not cast out to hell. He's just purified and goes through a time of, oh, this is uncomfortable. But not cast out, not damned, not cast into outer darkness. That is not... That is not on the docket for you if you are in Christ. Amen? That's gospel. That's good news. That's a different way of approaching this. When you're in Christ, there's no being cast into darkness. There's no gnashing of teeth. That is the very point of this. So if you're worried about judgment or being cast out, don't try harder. Instead, open your heart to Jesus. Begin to trust and follow him if you haven't begun that road already. Allow him to take up residence in your heart to give you new life. Now, in light of all of this good news, how can we be faithful to follow Jesus? Let's look at the parable in reverse. First, the failure of the third slave. He didn't know the master's character, and he was afraid. The first step, then, in being faithful is to trust the master we see in the scriptures. Who is this God who puts on flesh and dwells among us? God incarnate. Get to know him. Follow his life in the scriptures. And you know what's going to happen. It's gonna, you're going to think, oh, this is just a dry practice of reading these scriptures. I'm so sick of these Bible stories. But what will happen over time, if you stick with it, you'll begin to see the character of Christ exuding out of you. You'll actually not just know a character on a page. You'll begin to find one day, I know the person of Jesus who's alive. And the Spirit makes these passages come alive. So that's what I would say. If you want to be faithful, if you want something to do from the talents, get to know the Master. Second, you are not judged by your work. The only fear of judgment comes from not trusting Jesus. So, hey, now that you're free from the fear of judgment, you are free to work with joy. Think of how many times you hold back because of fear that you're going to screw something up or do it wrong or look silly. That's why it's a spiritual practice for me to get up and play bass guitar up here. Like, I'm over it. Deal with it. Right? Right? This frees us up. You're not going to be judged. Did you screw this up? Did you... Just go for it. Just live openly and freely and boldly. Uh, your Father in heaven and in His Son and the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, like, they, He loves you. And you can't screw that up. So go for it. You're free now to invest your life fully. That's the investment advice, by the way, if you thought how the title coming in here. <laughs> the investment advice is to, is to invest your life fully because Jesus fully invested in you all the way, even to the point of death on a cross. So the word here is go for it. Don't hold back. Live to be a blessing because it's what you were made for. 
The only thing to fear then is not living at all. Father, thank you for good news. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking away um, the pressure, the, the fear of, uh, 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 that often paralyzes us from doing anything. Lord, we confess that this is a difficult word to hear. We'd almost rather hear, just tell us to do stuff. Lord, we, we almost feel like uh, we're swimming in an ocean that's too big for us when we hear words of freedom and be bold and don't be afraid. Holy Spirit, we need your help to live into this broad country you've invited us into, this broad way of being and living, this invitation to know that we're loved, to know that you died for us, to know that we're safe in you, safe enough now to give everything to be a blessing to the world you created. Would you help us with that, Lord? Because it's impossible in our own strength.